Chapter Two of the Jesus of History by T. R. Glover. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Childhood and Youth. It has been remarked as an odd thing by some readers that the Gospels tell us so little of the childhood of Jesus. It must be remembered, however, that they are not really biographies, even of the ancient order still less that of modern kind, in which the main concern is a tracing of the psychological development of the man. Plutarch, the prince of ancient biographers, put fact and eulogy together, cited characteristic sayings or doings of his hero, quoted contemporary judgments, and wove the whole into a charming narrative, good to read, pleasant to remember, perhaps not without use as a lesson in conventional morality but with real historical criticism in it, and as little, or less, attempt at any effective reconstruction of a character. His biography of Pericles illustrates his method and his defects. The writers of the Gospels did not altogether propose biography as their object either in the ancient or the modern style. They left out, perhaps because it did not survive, much about the life of Jesus that we should like to know. The treatment of Mark by Matthew shows a certain matter-of-fact habit, which explains the obvious want of interest in aspects of the life and mind of Jesus that would, to a modern, be fascinating. They are dealing with the earthly life of the Son of God, and they deal with it with a faithfulness to tradition and reminiscence, which is, when we really consider it, quite surprising. But it is the heavenward side of the master that mattered to them most, and it is perhaps not a mere random guess that they were not, in any case, so aware of the interest of childhood and of children as Jesus was. Matthew and Luke record the miraculous birth, and each adds a story that has never failed to fascinate men, of the Magi, or the shepherds, who came to the manger cradle. Luke gives one episode of Jesus's childhood. That is all. The writers of the apocryphal Gospels did their best to fill the gap by inventing or developing stories, pretty, silly, or repellent, which only show how little they understood the original Gospels or the character of Jesus. But when we turn to the parables of Jesus and ask ourselves how they came to be what they are, by what process of mind he framed them, and where he found the experience from which one and another of them spring. It is at once clear that a number of them are stories of domestic life, and the question suggests itself, why should he have gone afield for what he found at home? If we know that he grew up in the ordinary circle of a home, and then find him drawing familiar illustrations from the common scenes of home, the inference is easy that he is going back to the remembered daily round of his own boyhood. In stray hints, the Gospels give us a little of the framework of that boyhood in Nazareth. The elder Joseph early disappears from the story, and we find a reference to four brothers and several sisters. Is this not the carpenter? people of Nazareth asked. The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? Matthew adds a word that may or may not be significant. 
his sisters are they not all with us in ancient times a particular view of the incarnation linked with other contemporary views of celibacy and the baseness of matter led men to discover or invent the possibility that these brothers and sisters were either the children of joseph by a former wife or the cousins of jesus on his mother's side that cousins in some parts of the world actually are confused in common speech with brothers may be admitted but to the ordinary greek reader brothers meant brothers and cousins something different no one not starting with the theories of st jerome let us say on marriage and matter and the decencies of the incarnation would ever dream from the greek narrative of the episode of the critical neighbours at nazareth who will not accept jesus as a prophet because they know his family a delightfully natural and absurd reason with history written plain on the face of it that jesus had no brothers only cousins or half-brothers at best when history gives us brothers and dogma says they must be cousins in any other case the decision of the historian would be clear and so it is here we have then a household a widow with five sons and at least two or very likely more daughters jesus is admittedly her eldest son and is bred to be a carpenter and a carpenter he undoubtedly was up to we are told about thirty years of age the dates of his birth and death are not quite precisely determined and people have fancied that he may have been rather older at the beginning of his ministry for our purposes it is not of much importance the more relevant question for us is this how came he to wait till he was at least about thirty years old before he began to teach in public one suggested answer finds the impulse or starting point of his ministry in the appearance of john the baptist it is a simpler inference from such data as we have that the claims of a widowed mother with six or seven younger children a poor woman with a carpenter's little brood to bring up may have had something to do with his delay in any case the parables give us pictures of the undeniable activities of the household a group of parables and other allusions illustrate the life of women as jesus saw it in his mother's house he pictures two women grinding together at the mill and then the heating of the oven the mud oven not unlike the field ovens used for a while by the english army in france in nineteen fifteen and heated by the burning of wood inside it kindled with the grass of the field meanwhile the leaven is at work in the meal where the women hid it and her son sits by and watches the heaving panting mass the bubbles rising and bursting the fall of the level and the rising of other bubbles to burst in their turn all bubbles later on the picture came back to him it was like the kingdom of god all bubbles said the disappointed but he saw more clearly the bubbles are broken by the force of the active life at work beneath life not death is the story the kingdom of god is life the leaven is of more account than any number of bubbles and we may link all these parables from bread making with what he says of the little boy asking for bread the mother fired the oven and set the leaven in the meal long before the child was hungry she looked ahead and the bread was ready.
is not this written also in the teaching of jesus your heavenly father knoweth that ye have need of all these things god he holds is as little taken aback by his children's needs as mary was by hers and the little boys did not confine their demands to bread they wanted eggs and fish as well there was no end to their healthy appetites it is significant that he mentions the price of the cheapest flesh food used by peasants they also wanted clothes and wore them hard as boys do the time would come when new clothes were needed but why could not the old ones be patched and passed down yet another stage and his mother would smile and perhaps she asked him to try for himself to see why and he learnt by experiment that old clothes cannot be patched beyond a certain point and later on he remembered the fact and quoted it with telling effect he pictures little houses and how they are swept especially when a coin has rolled away into a dusty corner or under something and candles and bushels and beds and moth and rust and all sorts of things that make the common round of life come into his talk as naturally as they did into his life the carpenter's shop we may suppose was close to the house a shop where men may count on good work and honest work and what memories must have gathered round it is it fanciful to suggest that what the churches have always been saying about coming to jesus began to be said in a natural and spontaneous way in that shop those little brothers and sisters did not always agree and tempers would now and then grow very warm among them and then the big brother came and fetched them away from the little house to the shop and set one of them to pick up nails and the other to sweep up shavings to help the carpenter they helped him like small boys when they help they got in his road at every turn but somehow they slipped back to a jolly frame of mind the big brother told them stories and they came back different people i can picture a day when there was a woman in the little house weary and heavy laden and the door opened and a cheery pleasant face looked in and said won't you come in and talk to me and she came and talked with him and life became a different thing for her are these pictures fanciful mere imagination are we to think that all the tenderness of jesus came to him by a miracle when he was thirty years of age must we not think it was all growing up in that house and in that shop or did he never tell a story he who tells them so charmingly till he wanted parables we have to note at the same time some elements of criticism of the elder brother in the family attitude some defect of sympathy and failure to understand him even if kindness prompted their action in later days nazareth lies in a basin among hills from the rim of which can be seen to the southward the historic plain of estrelon and eastward the jordan valley and the hills of gilead and westward the mediterranean on great roads north and south of the town's girdle of hills passed to and fro the many-coloured traffic between egypt and mesopotamia and the orient traders pilgrims herods the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them all within reach 
and travelling no faster, as a rule, than the camel cared to go. They formed a panorama of life for a thoughtful and imaginative boy. More than one allusion to King's clothes comes up in his recorded teaching. And it was here that he saw them, and noticed them, and remembered. One is struck with the amount of that unconscious assimilation of experience which we find in his words, and which is, in itself, an index to his nature. We are not expressly told that he sought the sights that the road afforded, but it would be hard to believe that a bright, quick boy, with genius in him, with poetry in him, with feeling for the real and for life, never went down on to that road, never walked alongside of the caravans, and took note of the strange people, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, Nubians, Egyptians, Romans, Gauls, Britons, and Orientals. In the one anecdote that survives of his boyhood, we find men astonished at his understanding, his gift for putting questions, and his comments on the answers, and all life through he had a genius for friendship. When we consider how Jesus handles nature and her wilder children in his parables, another point attracts attention. Men vary a great deal in this. To take two of the Old Testament prophets, we find a marked difference here between Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Ezekiel puts forth a riddle and speaks a parable about an eagle, a frankly heraldic eagle, that plants a treetop in a city of merchants. Jeremiah is obviously country-bred. He might have been surprised if he had been told how often he illustrates his thought from bird and beast and country life, and always with a certain lifelike precision and a perfectly clear sympathy. In the Gospels, we find again the same faithfulness to living nature. Another country-bred boy with the same love for bird and beast and the wild open countryside. The earth and common face of nature spake to me rememberable things. Nature is enough for Jesus as for Jeremiah. She needs no remodelling, no heraldic paints, long pinions of diverse colours. She will do as she is. She is just splendid and lovable and true as God made her, and she slides into his mind whenever he is deeply moved. Think of all the parables he draws from nature, the similes, metaphors, and illustrations. Every one of them will bear examination, and means more the nearer we look into it, and the better we know the living thing behind. The eagle, in Jesus' sentence, plants no trees, but it has the living bird's instinct for carrion. The ancient Greek historian, and Lord Roberts at Delhi in 1858, remarked that, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. In India that year, it was said they gathered from all over to Delhi. What brought them? Instinct, we say. And we find Jesus in that rather dark sentence, suggesting somehow that there is an instinct which knows where, and sheep, and cows, and asses, and hens, and sparrows, and red sunsets fill men's reminiscences of his talk, and we may safely conclude that, when allusions are so many 
in fragments of conversation preserved as these are the man's speech and mind were attuned to the love of bird and beast is there another teacher of those times who is at all so sure that god loves bird and flower the greek poet meliega of gadara not so very far removed from jesus in space of time has a good deal to say about flowers but not at all in the same sense as jesus nor with any feeling such as his for the immortal hand and eye that planned their symmetry and their colours and sweetness st paul is conspicuously a man of the town a citizen of no mean city and he dismisses the animals abruptly he has hardly an allusion to the familiar and homely aspects of nature so frequent and so pleasant in the speech of jesus he finds nature if not quite red in tooth and claw yet groaning together subject to vanity in bondage to corruption travailing in pain looking forward in a sort of desperate hope to a freedom not yet realized nature is far less tragic for jesus far happier perhaps because he knew nature on closer terms of intimacy nature as he portrays things is in nearer touch with the heavenly father than we should guess from paul and there is no hint in his recorded words that he held the ground to be under a curse if we are to use abstract terms and philosophize his thought a little we may agree that the four facts jesus notes in nature are its mystery its regularity its impartiality and its peacefulness what he finds in nature is not unlike what wordsworth also finds a power that is the visible quality and shape and image of right reason that matures her processes by steadfast laws gives birth to no impatient or fallacious hopes no heat of passion or excessive zeal no vain conceits provokes to no quick turns of self-applauding intellect but trains to meekness and exalts by humble faith holds up before the mind intoxicate with present objects and the busy dance of things that pass away a temperate show of objects that endure this is not a passage that one could imagine the historical jesus speaking or still less writing but the essential ideas chime in with his observation and his attitude for the earth bringeth forth fruit of itself first the blade then the ear and after that the full corn in the ear man can count safely on earth's cooperation from it all and in it all jesus read deep into god's mind and methods it has often been remarked how apt jesus was to go away to pray alone in the desert or on the hillside in the night or the early dawn probably no new habit induced by the crowded days of his ministry but an old way of his from youth the full house perhaps would prompt it apart from what he found in the open saint augustine in a very appealing confession tells us how his prayers may be disturbed if he catch sight of a lizard snapping up flies on the wall of his room the bird flying to her nest the fox creeping to his hole did these break into the prayers of jesus and with what effect was it in such hours that he learnt his deepest lessons from the birds and the lilies of the field 
why not as he sat out in the wild under the open sky did the stars never speak to him as to the hebrew psalmist and roman virgil when i consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him it is a question men have to meet and face and if we can trust matthew's statement an utterance of his in later years called out by the sneer of a pharisee shows how he had made the old poet's answer his own out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise if this were a solitary utterance of his thought upon nature it might be ranked with one or two pointed citations he made of the letter of the old testament but it is safe perhaps to take it as one of many indications of his communion with god and nature the wind blowing in the night where it listed must we authenticate every verse of the fourth gospel before we believe that he listened to it also and caught something at any rate in later years when his friends are overdriven and weary quiet and open air in a desert place are what he prescribes for them and wishes to share with them surely a hint of old experience but now let us turn back to nazareth for as the gospel reminds us there he grew up the city teaches the man said the old greek poet simonides and it does as we see and more than we sometimes realize jesus grew up in an oriental town in the middle of its life a town with poor houses bad smells and worse stories tragedies of widow and prodigal son of unjust judge and grasping publican yes and comedies too we know at once from general knowledge of jewish life and custom and from the recorded facts that he read the scriptures that he went to school and we could guess fairly safely that he played with his schoolfellows even if he had not told us what the games were at which they played at weddings and at funerals as if his life's vocation were endless imitation sometimes the children were sulky and would not play how strange and how delightful that the great gospel full of god's word for mankind should have a little corner in it for such reminiscences of children's games we cannot suppose that he had access to many books but he knew the old testament well and familiarly better and more aptly than some people expected traces of other books have been found in his teaching not many and some of them doubtful generally one would conclude that apart from the old testament his education was not very bookish he found it in home and shop in the desert on the road and in the marketplace it is interesting to gather from the gospel what jesus says of the talk of men and it is surprising to find how much it is till we realize how very much in ancient times the city was the education and the marketplace the school where some of the most abiding lessons were learned is it not so still in the east here was a boy however who watched men and their words more closely than they guessed on whose ears words fell not as old coinages but as new minting with the marks of thought still rough and bright on them indexes to the speaker 
proverbs of the market every people has of its own it is naught it is naught saith the buyer but after he has gone his way then he boasteth and the seller has all the variants of caveat emptor ready to retort in antiquity and in the east to-day apart from machine-made things we find the same uncertainty in most transactions as to the value of the article the same eagerness of both seller and buyer to get at the supposed special knowledge of the other and the same preliminary skirmish of proposal protest offer refusal and oath jesus stands by the stall watching some small sale with the bright earnest eyes which we find so often in the gospels the buyer swears on his head that he will not give more than so much then by the altar he won't get the thing by the earth it isn't worth it by the heaven the seller gave that for it so the battle rages and at last the bargain is struck the buyer raises his price the seller takes less than he gave for the thing neither has believed the other but each as the keen eyes of the onlooker see feels he has overreached the other heaven has been invoked and what is heaven as the words fell on the listener's ears he saw the throne of god and on it one before whose face heaven itself and earth will flee away and be brought back again for judgment and by heaven and by him who sits on the throne men will swear falsely for an anna or two how can they it is because nothings grow something the words make a mist about the thing in later days jesus told his followers not to swear at all to stick to yes and no then a leader in the religious world passes and the loiterers have a new interest for the moment rabbi rabbi they say and the great man moves onward obviously pleased with the greeting in the market-place soon as he is out of hearing it is no longer rabbi he is called talk turns to another tune how little the fine word meant how lightly the title was given worse still the title will stand between a man and the facts of life some will use it to deceive him others impressed by it are silent in his presence one way and another the facts are kept from him seeing he sees not and he comes to live in an unreal world how many men to-day will say what they really think before a man in clerical dress or a dignitary however trivial be not ye called rabbi was the counsel jesus gave to his followers and he would accept neither rabbi nor good master nor any other title till he saw how much it meant master they said we know that thou art true and teachest the way of god in truth neither carest thou for any man for thou regardest not the person of men but as the evangelist continues jesus perceived their wickedness he had heard such things before and was not trapped hosanna in the highest strange to think of the quiet figure riding in the midst of the excited crowd open-eyed and undeceived in his hour of triumph as little perturbed too when his name is cast out as evil how little men's praise and their blame matter when your eyes are fixed on god when you have him and his facts to be your inspiration on the other hand 
when you have not contact with god how much men's talk counts and how easy it is to lose all sense of fact by and by the talk veers round to what pilate had done to the galileans if the dates fit or if for the moment we can make them fit or anticipate once for all and be done with the bizarre talk which never stopped pilate had killed the galileans when they went up to jerusalem yes mingled their own blood you might say with the blood of their sacrifices what would he do next there was no telling what was needed some time it was bound to come and then the voice sank a theudas or a judas again it would not be surprising there were no newspapers no proved and reliable sources of news such as we boast to have from our governments and millionaires all was rumour bizarre talk lo there and lo there prohibiti sermones idioque plures said tacitus of rome rumours were forbidden so there were more of them the messiah must come some time said one man who might be a friend of the zealots in any case reflected another those galileans had probably angered heaven and got their deserts ill luck like that could hardly come by accident think of the tower that fell at siloam anybody could see that there was judgment in it might it not be said that god had discredited john the baptist now his head was taken off so men speculated jesus saw through all this and was radiantly clear about it so they chattered and he heard then the talk took another turn and tales were told bad eyes flashed and lips smacked as one story-teller eclipsed the other in the familiar vein the arabian nights are tales of the crowd it is said rather than literature in their origin and will give clues enough to what might be told jesus heard and he saw what it meant and afterwards he told his friends from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications murders foolishness all these evil things come from within and defile the man the evil thought takes shape to find utterance and gains thereby a new vitality a new power for evil and may haunt both speaker and listener for ever with its defiling memory by and by he intervened and spoke himself everyone was shocked and said blasphemy they were not used to think of god as he did and it seemed improper then the whole question of human speech rises for him what did they mean by their words what could their minds be like god dragged in and flung about like a counter at a game of barter but if you speak real meaning about god it is blasphemy rabbi rabbi to the great man's face he turns his back and his name is smirched forever by a witty improvisation why why should men do such things the magic in the idle tale ten minutes and the memory is stained forever with what not one of them would forget however you might wish to try to forget the words are loose and idle careless flung out without purpose but to pass the moment and they live forever and work mischief 
how can they be so light and yet have such power later on he told his friends what he had seen in this matter of words they come from within and the speaker's whole personality false or true is behind what he says the good or bad treasure of his heart there are no grapes growing on the bramble bush no wonder that of every idle word men shall give account of on the day of judgment the idle word the word unstudied comes straight from the inmost man the spontaneous overflow from the spirit within natural and inevitable proof of his quality and they react with the life that brought them forth so he grows up in a real world and among real people he goes to school with the boys of his own age and lives at home with his mother and brothers and sisters he reads the old testament and forms a habit of going to the synagogue all points to a home where religion was real the first word he learned to say was probably abba and it struck the keynote of his thoughts but he knew the world without as well turned on to it early the keen eyes that saw all and he recognized what he saw knowledge of men but without cynicism a loving heart still in spite of his freedom from illusions these are among the gifts that his environment gave him or failed to take away from him End of chapter 2